let us turn once again to the very interesting passage that we read at the beginning. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. The very last chapter of the book. Ecclesiastes is the preacher or the convener of the congregation. I see that there's 10 minutes before 12 and I'm expected to finish by 12. I don't know how feasible that is. So possibly I shall go somewhat beyond 12. But I won't go beyond Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 to 8. Thank you, Uncle Graham. Let us pray. All right, thank you. Let us pray. Gracious Divine Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For Jesus' sake, Amen. <coughs> now it might seem strange to talk about graceful aging in the times in which we live. COVID-19 and many other conditions are cutting short people's lives. And unfortunately, more persons than, uh, than would appear to be normal are dying at a younger age. Actually, the normal that all of us would be happy with is for everyone to live to old age. But since the world began, since sin came into the world, we recognize that many people have been dying younger. But particularly in these circumstances of COVID-19 and various other afflictions that are besetting humankind, including accident deaths, then very many people are dying at a younger age, even a tender age. So it might seem incongruous, out of place, to talk about graceful aging. But nonetheless, it is the will of the Creator for as many of us as possible to live to old age. Amen. And so I am happy to share with you this hope from the Bible and some guidelines as to how, if we are so blessed to live longer, we may age gracefully. And these guidelines, this wisdom, comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is believed to have been written by wise, wise King Solomon. And King Solomon, despite his wisdom, went unfortunately at a point in his life into sensual pleasure hedonism following pursuits of fleshly pleasure 
and he greatly regretted this, and it is believed that Ecclesiastes was written after his repentance so that he would help other persons, particularly young persons, not to make the same mistakes that he made, not to repeat the same mistakes that he made of spoiling his reputation for wisdom and honor by going into an abandoned life of hedonism and what he thought was sexual pleasure. So in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, as you can see, he begins very aptly, remember your creator in the days of your youth. The passage as I read it probably seems to have some mysterious, difficult to fathom aspects. That is so. But this is especially so in the original language, the Hebrew. There are many, many fascinating aspects of this passage in the original Hebrew language, such that we are only scratching the surface in this divine service message. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, remember your creator. This term creator is such a powerful term in the context of Ecclesiastes because the book seems to be full of some secularism, how King Solomon followed secular pursuits of building and majesty, and he spends a significant amount of time commenting on the meaningless of life. And then we see all of a sudden, he doesn't simply say, remember God. He says, remember the creator. Remember your creator, an astonishing concept against a backdrop of what seems to be pessimism and gloom. He comes up and says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. This is the spe it's a specific term for creator. It is not Elohim. God or El, it is not Yahweh, the self-existent one who is indeed the creator. But he actually says, remember your, the Hebrew term is Borecha. Now Borecha is a participle form of a verb we find in Genesis. In the beginning, God created bara. That's the term, para. Now that is the term that the writer of Ecclesiastes uses here. Remember bor echa. And this term actually is full of controversy. Not only is it the specific term for the creator, someone who creates, remember bor echa. The grammatical form has some profound controversies attached to it. So for instance, even though the term your is singular, masculine singular, but in that compound term, this word bor-eh, bor-echa, it's actually a plural form. It is actually a plural form, and in this plural form, 
King Solomon was, even in his wisdom, he was not suggesting that you and I have two or more creators. This plural form, which is not translated remember your creators, but remember your creator, it is regarded as an honorific, a plural of majesty, uh, something that shows the majesty of God. Now, non-Trinitarians scoff at Trinitarian efforts to refer to the plurality within the Godhead in Ecclesiastes 12.1. So they say, no, when Trinitarians try to say Borecha, which could be translated literally creators, is actually referring to the plurality in the Godhead that is expressed in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is scoffed at. Very, very unusual form. Remember your creator. But a plural form. Very interestingly, it is tied to the concept of remember. So Ecclesiastes did not use this term accidentally. I think you're acquainted with, familiar with where else in the Bible we find the word remember? That's right, Exodus 28 to 11. I didn't say I won't go backward from Ecclesiastes. I said I won't go beyond Ecclesiastes 12. But I didn't say I won't go backward from Ecclesiastes 12. So let's look at Exodus 20 and verse 8. It's the same Hebrew term in the kal or pa'al, which is the simplest form of the verb. It is zakhar. Zakhar means to remember, like in the name Zechariah. So let's look at Exodus 20, 8 to 11. Exodus 20, 8 to 11. Remember that same Hebrew word which in the pa'al, the simplest form is zakhar, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in, the six, for in six days the Lord made. That's a synonym, synonym for create, isn't it? For created. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. <coughs> Excuse me. And rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. I think you can see conclusively beyond a shadow of doubt that King Solomon was not just using words by accident or happenstance. He, is, he has used the same verb, zakhar, that is found in Exodus 20, and he's referring to the same agent, the Creator. By the way, that should tell us that the Sabbath is actually, it's a memorial of creation and it actually, it's proper celebration. 
the proper celebration of the Sabbath allows the creative power of God to fill our lives. So when he says here, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Actually, it is the creator, the eternal creator who gives you. It's the eternal creator who gives healing. It's the eternal creator who is able to help an older person feel young, youthful, and vigorous. So this is very intentional usage of words, controversial though it may be. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. By this, I think King Solomon means to say that if you remember your creator in the days of your youth, you will keep young longer and you will age more gracefully. Because you will be living in harmony with the creator of Genesis 1 to 3. And of course, that same creator who is worshipped throughout the Bible. Before the difficult days come, he says, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Then begins a remarkable passage. The verses that are to follow are regarded by Bible scholars as allegorical. Now the difference between an allegory and a parable is this. A parable is a story with a central meaning, like the parable of the sower, or the parable of the lost coin, and so on. But an allegory is a literary figure where each part of the allegory signifies something. So in very simplistic terms, it said a parable has one meaning, but what we really mean is it has one central meaning. There are some supportive meanings. But in an allegory, the different parts of the allegory signify something important, something impactful. So Ecclesiastes 12, as the verses go on up to verse 8, is regarded as an allegory of aging. It's very, very interesting. Now, some see this starting in verse 2. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened. Now the sun, the light, the moon and the stars are there. They're not darkened. So this is regarded as the first hint now in the passage of fading eyesight. Which then becomes more specific as the passage goes on. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened. Now, as I was doing some research for this message, you may find some commentaries. These may be in book form. You may research from the commentaries electronically, like using Google, whether it be Matthew Henry Stedman and various uh, other sites. And you will find some wonderful, detailed, intricate analysis of Ecclesiastes 12. Now, in the midst of these, there are some that appear a bit zany. 
They appear zany not because they are way off target, but because they have a little bit of what seems to be upside down as you go along. Those that seem a bit zany, I think, are the ones that are trying to be more practical. You know, like how you say, right, here's Ecclesiastes 12, um, this stands for this, um, this stands for this, um, this stands for that. Now, in doing so, you find a few elements that appear upside down, whereas other commentators have done a highly technical, rigorous job sticking close to the Hebrew text and are very much more correct. Now, those that have a few zany elements that seem a bit casual, they're following the same pattern, but maybe with what seems to be upside down, they may actually be following an ancient pattern that was there before. You know, it's like if you say, if you want to say, I hold the knife and the fork with my hands, then someone says, when I sit down at the table, I hold the knife and the fork with my feet. Now, that can just be a mistake, or it could be that someone is trying to get people to say, no, 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 not with your feet, with your hands. So some of that, in as much as people may dispute and differ upon fine points of this allegory, someone might be putting things the opposite way to get a reaction and say, no, 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 that's not so. It's the other way. No, 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 you don't hold the knife and fork with your feet you hold the knife and fork with your hands. And to allow as much of that correction to come through as possible so as to point to the correct pattern. Of course, there are some people who have been disabled who can hold the knife and fork with their hands and even, with, sorry, with their feet. And some persons who've been disabled even learn to paint and to write with their feet. So it's not entirely uh, out of the order. But nonetheless, you can look up commentaries and find out more about this allegory, and you can do so electronically using Google as well. And some are more heavily serious and scholarly, and some are but lighthearted and practical. So you may not agree with everything, but they are all agreeing that this is an allegory and they all agree on the main points. Now it's interesting as we proceed with this allegory, the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, hints of failing eyesight, the clouds do not return after the rain. You might draw a blank there. What does that mean? Clouds do not return after the rain. Being interested in these things myself, I would picture mucus. You know, mucus can really obscure the vision of the eyes. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble. Now here is where it begins to get more and more specific. From verse 3, when the keepers of the house tremble. And a number of expositors, a number of scholars, they say the keepers of the house are the arms and the hands. All right? The keepers of the house tremble. The strong men bow down or bend low. The strong men are related to the legs, which are thought to be the strongest unit in the body. That is true, isn't that right? Your legs are your strongest units in your body. 
For instance, persons who engage in martial discipline in a very approximate way, they say that the legs are twice as strong as the arms. So a kick from the leg is more devastating than a blow from the arm. So we find a number are agreed that the strong men are the legs and they bend low. Someone else rather casually says the, that the keepers of the house uh, are, are the, uh, that the strong men are the arms. Someone says that rather casually. But by and large, it said the strong, the keepers of the house are the arms, the strong men, the legs. When the grinders cease, because they are few. Now these are taken to refer to the teeth. The grinders cease, because they are few. Now notice here that the writer, Ecclesiastes, Koheleth in Hebrew, King Solomon if you please, is not being hyper-precise. He's leaving room for further investigation. Technically, not all your teeth are grinders. You have incisors for biting. And then you have premolars and molars which are used for grinding. So all these are encompassed in the image of grinders. Of course, being a wise man, he might have been hinting that one reason that grinders, the teeth get lost, is because this area needs to be developed needs to be really microanalyzed. So yes, he says the grinders cease because they are few. Now we're blessed with 32 teeth ordinarily, including the incisors, the canines, the premolars, and the molars. Incisors, canines, premolars, and molars. 32 teeth, 16 on top, 16 on the bottom. So this text is saying the grinders cease because there are few. I have a special interest in this. Some of you may be aware that while my base qualification is theology, Bachelor of Arts in Theology, I'm currently studying, the, uh, studying online with Andrews University, Master of Public Health in Nutrition and Wellness. And one major element of public health is epidemiology, which can be defined in different ways, but very simply, epidemiology studies the spread of disease. Within epidemiology, there are different types of epidemiology, like epidemiology of heart disease, epidemiology of obesity, being greatly overweight. There is also dental epidemiology. That is the, the distribution, the prevalence of dental conditions amongst human beings. Now, I find this to be particularly fascinating. The grinders cease because they are few. Then most people look upon this as the loss of teeth, teeth getting less and less. The grinders cease because they are few. But my particular interpretation, which you won't find in any of the commentaries, that is from my particular health focus. You won't find it. The grinders cease because they are few. That is, the sets are few. We only have two sets, milk teeth and permanent teeth. That's my particular interpretation. 
which is a hopeful interpretation. The grinders cease because they are few. By the way, it doesn't cancel out the loss of teeth. That's the main point. Teeth are being lost. But then, why are they not replaced? There are only two sets. Are we together? That's my angle on that, which is a hopeful angle that maybe God will allow someone somewhere sometime to grow a third set of grinders. And I'm always trying to do that. So the grinders cease because they are few. That verse has challenged me for years and years. And yes, obviously, teeth are falling out, becoming less. But I believe there's this additional point. They cease because there are only two sets. There are few sets. Whereas with a nail, if you don't do it every day, it falls off, nail bud will grow. Some years later, falls off, another one should grow. Your hair, you cut it, it grows. But with teeth, the sets are few. And so, if you lose your permanent teeth, thus far it's a permanent loss. <laughs> the grinders cease because they are few. And those that look through the window grow dim. What might that be? Eyes. Those looking through the windows grow dim. That's right, the eyes. Those that look through the windows grow dim. When the doors are shut in the streets, because it's referring not to one door, but, as it were, to two doors, this is referred to the lips. Since grinders are falling out, lips are shut, and the doors are shut in the streets, and the sound of grinding is low, having to chew very carefully with the remaining teeth. All right. Of course, you might want to look at that uh, positively. You, you will actually be amused. You might, if you go after the sermon and read some of the zany interpretations, to say now all the teeth are gone, someone is chewing with gums, and you can hardly hear the sound of that. I found that to be very amusing. So the sound of grinding is low. And someone else says in these days there were no dangers, you know. I know Belleville Church is gifted with at least one dentist, maybe more. So according to that interpretation, King Solomon was writing to catch the attention of your resident dentist here at Belleville to say, you need to come there and give us some dentures. So it was pointed out there were no dentures in those days. I wouldn't be so absolute. Maybe sometimes people got some animal teeth and sterilized them and used them anciently as dentures. Of course, this would tend to make people look very, very fierce. <laughs> since the, these were not human teeth. But I'm sure they tried to do something with them. So the sound of grinding is low. Maybe there's some hope in that. Maybe somewhere deep within the gums, maybe grinders want to come out. But as has been rather humorously put by a number of the expositors, the teeth are finished, one is left chewing with gums, and they don't make the sound of teeth chewing. 
When one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of music are brought low. One's sleep is easily disturbed by a very faint sound, and yet one struggles to hear the special item in church. All the daughters of music are brought low. However, daughters of music may also refer to the vocal cords. So you'll notice there is more than one meaning in some of these images. One rises at the sound of a bird, the chirping in the morning wakes one up, disturbs one's sleep. All the daughters of music are brought low. Meaning then, one struggles to hear even, yes, the beautiful music, but one's vocal cords begin to lose their vigor and their power. So whilst one's, hearing, whilst one's hearing is deteriorating, it is difficult for the aged amongst themselves to raise the volume. Are we together? In my case, probably the volume will be the last part of me to die, for whatever reasons. I've just turned 55, praise God, I still have volume. So I think Volume will be the last part of me to die. But <laughs> all the daughters of music are brought low. You struggle to hear the music, but the actual vocal cords are also regarded as daughters of music. That is what the body uses to produce music and sound. All the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height, balance is disturbed, and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms. Now, almond trees have pink or white flowers. And they also have pink flowers that turn white. So this image here, when the almond tree blossoms, it's taken by expositors to refer to white hair, gray hair. It's true that almond flowers may be either pink or white, but it is not the right I had in mind, the white ones. So whatever you do, don't go and dye your hair pink because you're growing old. So when the almond tree blossoms, it's taken to be an image of Graying, whitening with age. A famous artist, Vincent van Gogh, van Gogh, he has a series of paintings from 1888, I think it is, to 1890, called Almond Blossoms. You may take a look at them. Look them up electronically. Beautiful. Almond Blossoms. And he has some white almond blossoms, and he also has some pink ones as well. But there are those particular ones that start out pink and grow white. The almond blossoms look like peach tree blossoms. And very interesting, if you take a ripe peach and eat the flesh of the peach, then you split the kernel, the seed. You will find something that is similar to an almond and tastes like an almond. If you do it with a raw peach, it tastes rather bitter. Very, very interesting. So when the almond tree blossoms, it's saying that the hair whitens. 
Uh, I have some of that. Not all of it. I still have lots of dark hair, lots of black hair, but there's definitely some gray, some white. So when the almond tree blossoms, whitening of hair, particularly due to old age, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. The grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. Now, grasshopper is an image of vigor, isn't it? Athleticism with those big jumping legs. So what is being said here in a very picturesque way is that one loses one's vigor, flexibility, power. You tend to move around in a very inhibited manner, maybe with a walking stick. So the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. Now the Hebrew term for desire here, aviona, it is what theologians call an hapax legomenon. I prefer the proper Greek translation, hapax legomenon. But it's been taken over into English, hapax legomenon, and it's referred to as hapax legomenon. Now, hapax legomenon means a unique phrase. It's found only there in the Bible, nowhere else. So to put this into context, in some homes, the words I love you are hapex legomenon, right? Say it only once. <laughs> I hope that's not so, Belleville Church. That the words I love you should be hapex legomenon. Say it only once. Maybe on the day of the wedding and never ever again. Because that's what hapex legomenon means. A word that is, or a term that is used only once in that work, in this case in scripture. So it doesn't appear anywhere else in scripture. The plural is hapex legomena, hapex legomena, which means words, sayings, things that appear only in that passage. So this desire fails, it's not easy to render. It's referring to the caperberry fruit, and the caperberry fruit was eaten for sexual stimulation. So what is being said here when desire fails? Even those things that are thought to stimulate a sexual response fail. Or alternatively, or both, uh, the sexual response itself fails. It's no longer taking place. So that's alternatively or both. Either what is thought to stimulate a person sexually has no effect, and or that person's a sexual, uh, sexual function is totally non-responsive. So this is aviona, referring to the caperberry fruit which was used as an aphrodisiac. It was eaten as an aphrodisiac. When desire fails, for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Now you notice that much of this has been focusing on the head. Probably Solomon was showing that one thing he learned in his old age 
is that he should have used his head more wisely than he used his body. He should have used his head more wisely than he used his body. So we've looked at the eyes, we've looked at the teeth, but we've also looked at the arms, the keepers of the house, the legs, the strong men. Remember your creator, verse 6 says, before the silver cord is loosed. I found something here strangely uh, persuasive amongst the expositors. Some relate the silver cord to the spinal column. Sounds quite accurate. Or the golden bowl is broken. According to this interpretation that the silver cord refers to the spinal column, the golden bowl refers to the head. It's only that your head is not a bowl, it has a top. So I was finding it difficult to picture that. Of course, both silver and gold conduct electricity. <coughs> it's only that if people steal copper wire, imagine what would happen if we used gold and even silver as electricity lines. So that could be where some are saying that the golden bowl then is the head containing the brain because our nervous systems function on electrochemical impulses. Or the pitcher shattered at the fountain. Now, some refer this to the heart, saying heart failure. The pitcher shattered at the fountain. That also seems fairly... Uh, fairly persuasive because the heart pumps the blood that nourishes the whole system. So you'll find an expositor relates this to the heart and heart failure. The pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. This particular expositor was stuck on the heart system and saying now the wheel broken at the well means that the circulation, the circulatory system, the circulation of the blood is not functioning so well. For myself, for this type of imagery, I would wonder why the wheel broken at the well might not refer to uh, what urologists are concerned with, urinary uh, health, things like prostate cancer and so on. The wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So what King Solomon is saying is, ordinarily this is uh, the stage of old age and decay, but he started off saying, remember your creator, the creator of the Sabbath command in Exodus 28 to 11, the creator of Genesis 1, and of course, 2 and 3. Same term, borecha, from the verb bara. So he seems to hold a hope that if he had not squandered his youthfulness on immoral living, he would be in a better condition physically at the time of writing. But he did learn something 
and he points people to the creator. Possibly he had in mind, in his intelligence, in his brilliance, that concept of the creator renewing. And therefore used that as a license to live carelessly. And found, oh, oh, it's impossible now from this extent to reverse things back that you'd actually have to be living very carefully, allowing the creator to continue renewing you. And so he says, the spirit will, the dust will return to the earth, the spirit of the breath will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity, a good rendition that someone has given is futility of futilities, which is, I, I think, how I used to define this term uh, when I first read Ecclesiastes some decades ago. Futility of futilities, meaningless, meaningless. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So what a powerful passage, my brothers and sisters. We did not go through it exhaustively, and as, as you can see, there are some areas that are disputable, but I think no one will doubt that grinders refer in a rather all-encompassing way to teeth, that those looking through the windows refer to the eyes and the eyesight, and certainly doors being shut in the streets rather than simply door may very aptly refer to lips and the daughters of music. One rises up at the sound of a bird failing, hearing, failing, vocal cords. Some of these elements are pretty much clear, but others are disputable. And perhaps the wise man intended it that way to have some flexibility and also possibly calling for more study, just like with teeth, to subcategorize them as we've done today, not only grinders, but incisors, canines, premolars, and molars. The message from King Solomon is clear, my brothers and sisters. If we are to age gracefully, we must use our heads to take care of every aspect of our spiritual and physical well-being. And if we use our heads properly, as King Solomon regretted not using his head quite as effectively as he ought to with his vast wisdom, then God will keep us as youthful as possible, as long as possible, and with the passing of years will keep us aging as gracefully as possible. May God bless that this may be the experience of each and every one of us, that we may remember the Creator God, who indeed does show himself in divine fullness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the creation and throughout Scripture so that we may live regenerate lives in the degenerate age in which we live, and thereby manifest the blessings of the Creator to the world around. This is my sincere prayer for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, Amen.